how great his faithfulness. You know, that, that title comes from a verse in the book of Lamentations. Isn't that interesting? That Jeremiah wrote that book and he was lamenting over what was going on in Israel and the children of Israel and Judah. And in the middle of that, he writes, Great is your faithfulness, O God. That's, that's wonderful. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 10. And we're going to be talking about godliness, the bottom line, the real bottom line. That's an accounting term. When you're, when you're adding things up and you're subtracting out your, your, your overhead from your, from your gross receipts and all that, and you get to the bottom line, that's what you made. That's your profit. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Your profit. Not profit, but profit. Anyway, let's read this passage together, and we'll talk about the real bottom line. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But <laughs> godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich, fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's pray. God, we know as we come into this room this morning that the God of discontentment is out there and has been bugging us all week, enticing us, Father, to trust something else. But you've made it very clear that we need to listen to you because you are the God who created all we see. You are the sovereign God who loves us, cares for us, and sent your one and only son to die for us. Why should we listen to anything else? So guide us this morning, Father, as we explore the, the world's idea of godliness and the distractions, and we find in there your truth that you are the solution to our discontentment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I may have given it away already, but what's the number one selling product out there right now? Discontentment, right? Anything they can do to get you discontented with your car, your internet, your, your football team, your house, anything. That is the number one. That is driving all of the world's affections to get you discontent, to make you just a little bit uncomfortable. They run on dissatisfaction. The world runs on that. People say love makes the world go round. No distractions and dissatisfactions really do it's everywhere every product in the world tries to make us discontent with our life our food whatever 
You can fill in the blank. Every public platform where people get to voice their opinions is meant to create malcontents, meant to create people that are unhappy and looking for something else so that they can show them something else to distract them over here where someone will distract, try to distract them back over here and it just goes on and on. And what the world really needs, what the world really needs is an absolutely true source of contentment, of peace and satisfaction. And the solution to the wars out there of words and politics and positions and status, the, the solution is godliness. Godliness. And the source of that godliness is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy pursuit of God by Christ our Savior is the only real source of that godliness. The Son of God giving us all new hearts. And Jesus is the one name to remember in this whole sermon today of where our godliness will come from. Because when godliness is in the room, when godliness is in the room, truth is seen, hope is real, and peace transcends our minds. There's no lamenting over the past, but there's only rejoicing in the future when godliness is in the room. So I'll give you a little context of what, what the book of 1 Timothy is talking about. I've been telling you this for weeks now. Pastor Timothy is pastor of the church of Ephesus in, in what's now probably uh, Greece or maybe even Turkey. It's a Roman colonial city, very important city, very large, and very plagued by pagan worship. The temple of Artemis is there. So everybody worships and has, has idolatry, immorality, secular ideas, which I'll give you some more in information on that in a minute, all are just running rampant in that city. That's just the way all Roman cities did because that's what the Greeks kind of started in their conquest of the world. And so now creeping into the church, creeping into the church is with some by believers and some just by people spouting ideas to, and, and they're pretending to be believers, is some of these ideas, some of this idolatry, some of this immorality. And Paul here is countering that. Paul counters the the false doctrines of prosperity Christianity. That's really what was going on with the truth about godliness and riches. He's just countering it. So God calls us to look at godliness, to look at godliness as the greatest return for our life, the greatest return on your, the investment of your 70-plus years, hopefully, on this planet. It is our real legacy, not our 401Ks, not our IRAs, but godliness. So how does godliness counter the promise of temporary riches? You know, why is godliness the best investment? Well, we're going to see that by the two contrasts that are in this passage. There are two very obvious contrasts in how we live our lives compared to the world. And it's going to show us the benefits and why we pursue that. First of all, we're going to talk about the negative, the negative side of this. False ideas lead to false faith. That's that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5 and verses 9 through 10. I'm going to read those again. And we're going to see where, fake, where the fake stuff leads and how God supplies. Verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. And from these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. 
who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Skip down to verse 9. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let's see where the fake and the false leads. You know, Paul's given, and right there before verse 3, is he, Paul says, teach and encourage these things. Paul says that many times. Command and teach these things. Teach and command these things. Encourage these things. All through this book, he's telling Timothy, look, pass this stuff on. So a lot of the scholars want to argue about which, which passage he's talking, he's talking about when he says that. He's talking about it all. Okay, he's talking about it all. Paul's like, I'm not writing any wasteful stuff here. You need to teach it all. You need to encourage people with it all. So... Paul's already told this church in Ephesians chapter 5, his letter to that church in Ephesus, that greed is idolatry. He's already had to tell them that. But now to the same church, he shows them how it's idolatry and what happens. First of all, in verse 3, we see teaching false doctrines in the church. And it can happen a lot of ways. Okay, we get together on Sundays and I preach to you and you hopefully are listening to me and we hopefully get some doctrine from this. And most of the time, the rest of the week, you may not dig into your Bible very much. You may not go to something. But in the first century church, they met in houses and homes. And they met all week long. They wouldn't come to a central location. They would go to someone's home. They would have a worship service maybe on Sunday. But then... They would, through the week, meet and have meals together. They wouldn't necessarily all be together. They might break up in smaller groups because they didn't want the Romans to find them sometimes. They were getting persecuted as well. So it made for opportunity for a false teacher to kind of just slip in on a small group someplace and start dropping these little hints about these new ideas. New ideas were always running rampant in the Roman Empire and and the Greek Empire as well. But they were always debated and spoken. As a matter of fact, there's, there's books and books and books and evidence and evidence of these, these forums that would happen in these towns where orators would come and debate different ideas. Paul gets into that with the, with the group in Athens in uh, Acts chapter 17. But it's like a constant thing. And if you're a very good speaker and you can make a point, you get patronage. People pay you. They think you're great, and they want to take you out to dinner, and they want to court you, and they want to pay your way, and all this stuff. So it's a profit-earning business already, this kind of thing. And it went on all the time, and there was this constant competition. So getting the ideas into the church was not very hard, not very hard at all. Remember, they didn't have a New Testament, and most of them didn't have an Old Testament. They didn't have a Bible at all. Now, there were some writings flying around of the New Testament that eventually ended up in the New Testament, but they didn't all have that. Matter of fact, this church is pretty fortunate, Ephesus. They had a letter from Paul, and now they have a letter to Timothy from Paul that's going to be read. So they got a lot of information. So the the false ideas and the false doctrines can slip in real easily. But how do you spot them? And that's what Paul gives us right here. He gives us some very good and clear signs. First of all, he says, the teacher and the doctrine will not agree with Jesus. Boy, that should be obvious, right? I mean, I hear people all the time. I saw a quote this morning, most ridiculous thing I ever heard. And I was like, there's nowhere in my Bible that it says that or counters that, contradicts what he's saying. It's like it's not in Scripture. Jesus didn't teach it, so it's not true. And that's where one of the best ways. It, don't, it doesn't agree. The false doctrine is not sound. It's unsound. It's unhealthy. It promotes things that are going to lead you to unhealthiness in your spiritual It leads to ungodliness. It leads to selfish desires. It leads to sin. That's what's false about it. 
is telling you something is holy and righteous and it really isn't. That's one of the main signs he gives us. In verse 4, he tells us of some other ways to spot false teaching. The person talking, the person infiltrating the groups and introducing these false ideas, they have certain distinguishing traits. You know, they're known by their their color. They're known by their wool, (laughs) in a sense, their fruit. First of all, they're conceited. They're, they walk in and they basically say, I got the floor, I, got, I, I, I know everything. And they're really, but they're really ignorant of the truth. They really don't know. Paul's already talked about that in chapter 1. Their disputes have no regard for who they're talking to. They just want to create an atmosphere of controversy and then act like they've got the, all the right answers. It leads, to, it leads to ungodliness in the group. They don't care who's listening. They don't care who it harms. They just want to spout it. And then they begin to fight over the words. A semantic war, I call it. Basically arguing over how you pronounce something or what exactly that word, which word was that. Words are important. (laughs) Words are very important. We have a whole book full of them, okay, that we follow. Words are important. But the meaning and the principles behind the words are more important. And understanding those clearly according to Scripture is what Paul's telling them they need to do. The intention of the heart of the person spouting these new ideas matters. We're going to get to motives here in a minute. But semantics, sometimes that aids the theological understanding. And I, studying this, it's like all the time, you're going to have to figure it out. But when you use words in a particular way to just win the argument or try to win the argument, that's never healthy. Win the person over. And then you can discuss what you may disagree with. In the church, we need to always be considered who we're talking to and how we can edify each other. That's what church does. We're supposed to build each other up. So we don't need to get into arguments over words. And then Paul goes on to list the results of these things. So if you didn't pick up on the fact that they disagree with Jesus' teachings and you didn't pick up on the, the traits of this infiltrator, maybe he's a smooth talker, like a used car salesman or something. If you were a used car salesman, no offense, but... If you, he's a smooth talker. If you didn't pick up on those two things, Paul lists a whole bunch of things that's going to happen. First, there's going to be envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement. Well, that doesn't sound like a fun place to be at all. I know some families that have that trouble. And nobody wants to go to Thanksgiving dinner. Listen, envy, you're wanting position to the point of despising other people. That's all envy is. It's like you're trying to gain control over them. You're trying to gain a position. Quarreling, just having discord all the time, always having to argue about everything or discuss everything. And it's usually over anything, anything. The color of the carpet, what kind of, what kind of songs we sing, all that kind of stuff can go on. Slander, verbalizing falsely about someone for selfish gain. That's what slander really is. You may, you may think it's just an innocent statement, but really in your heart you're probably trying to, to gain some position on somebody. Evil suspicions causing unfounded accusations for, or doubts even. Just keep creating doubt. All these things are happening and swirling about in, in the group. And that's what Paul's saying. If you didn't catch that they're against Jesus and you didn't catch the way this guy's talking to you, at least you'll see these. And then constant disagreement at the beginning of first, verse 5. It never lets anything be settled or peaceful. Sometimes we just got to let some things go. Sometimes you just can't keep arguing the the finite details of things. You got to let some things go. And all of these 
sins that he lists out here, these occur because the mind is depraved. They, they've just, their mind is only seeking selfish things. They're having truthless thinking about it. They're deprived of the truth, is what Paul says. They're not enlightened by the Holy Spirit. They're not enlightened by the Holy Spirit. There's a lack of Jesus in their teachings, and it leads to very selfish sins. They're not enlightened by the Holy Spirit. They may have looked like a Christian. They may have sounded like a Christian, but they're not enlightened. And see, the false doctrinal ideas will, in the end, create this environment because truth and lies cannot coexist. They're, they're not, they won't even coexist like oil and water. Oil and water separate, and they're still in the same container. Truth and lies really cannot coexist. Light and dark cannot be in the same place. In the church, the false will collide with the truth, hopefully, leading to these results. And the truth is always your, your Bible. That's what we're leaning on. Truth and, and lies, they just can't live in the same place. But in the end, Paul really gets to the, to the bottom line of what's going on here, of why they're infiltrating these ideas. In the last part of verse 5, material gain. They're there to try to get some kind of material advantage. They're, they're wanting money. They're using, they're using godliness, that term, but they're not godly. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're, they're using that word godliness, and they're using Christian, and I'm putting that in air quotes. Uh, I don't know if that works for podcasts or not, but they're putting that Christian teaching to earn wealth, to earn their favor. They're teaching under a pretense of Christ with ulterior motives. They're preaching under that pretense that I'm a Christian and listen to what I say, but they got ulterior motives of riches. Their selfish gain is what they're pursuing. And that's a problem today. Don't you think? Yeah, it's out there. And we'll talk about it in a minute. So now we see how to recognize the false teaching and the false doctrines and what's, what the results of that is and, near, and really what the ultimate purpose of it is, is to get wealthy, make some money. But go to verse 9 and Paul tells us what happens to those who seek wealth by illicit means, by illegal ways. That's what he gets to there. Their real purpose of speaking these false doctrines is money, which never works out for good. When you're lying and teaching false stuff to gain money, it really never works out good. Yeah, I know. There's people out there that did it and got away with it for a while. But I want you to see the words that Paul uses right here. He uses some very specific negative words. Temptation. Look at the temptation they put themselves in. And he, it changes. It even says it's a trap or a snare. They're just, they're just setting themselves up for foolish and harmful lusts and pursuits. That's what they're doing. And they're pursuing this with their false ideas and trying to earn money. And, and it just is going to sink them. That's what he says. They will sink into ruin and destruction. And in the end, if money is their God, which it sounds like it is, these consequences will happen. And they have happened. If you've, if you've ever seen someone's life that, that they, pursued, they pursued money through erroneous means, they usually get caught at some point. These consequences are going to happen. Money, Paul's telling them this, money is a God that is never satisfied. Never satisfied. When one makes wealth your, your God, their life becomes a slave to it. They do, they become a slave to it. In Proverbs it says, it's better to be poor with friends than to be rich and have nobody. J.D. Rockefeller said basically the same thing. 
the poorest man in the world is the richest man in the world with no friends. Wealth becomes the taskmaster that never sleeps and never lets you sleep because it's always wanting more. That's, the, that's, that's what happens when money becomes our God. In verse 10, Paul gives us the truth, the eternal perspective on wealth. The bottom line for false faith here, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Loving money becomes the root that sprouts all kinds of evil. All wickedness grows from it. And you see the wickedness up in the end of verse 4, all the things that happen because they're pursuing money as their God. And next then, Paul shows that the long-lasting effects of the money God, that craving the gold loses God. Craving the gold ring loses God. That's what he shows you at the very end of verse 10. People pretending to be believers, they stop trusting Christ for their provisions, for their wealth, for their anything. And they start worshiping their own efforts. They would never admit that they were worshiping the idol of money or wealth. They would just say, I'm, I'm just doing what I want, I want to do for myself. They leave the faith, he says. They leave the faith. Some of it's temporary. Some of us, present company included, have, have been lured away at times by ambition and wealth. Praise God, we came back. But some are to leave the faith permanently, forever. They really were never saved. They really were never born again. And they live in this constant pain and grief over having enough. I mean, it's constant. If any of you have ever not had, you, you know what, how it plagues your mind. But some of them have been trying to fake it while they were chasing the money. Others just leave Jesus to serve wealth. They decide, I'm not, I don't need Jesus. I'm going to go make my own fortune. Sort of like the prodigal son did when he took his inheritance. And Jesus said very clearly, you cannot, you cannot serve God and money. You either hate the one and love the other, love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can only love one God. So false doctrines, false doctrines by these false teachers leads to false faith pursuing false gods. I know there's a lot of faults in there. I'll say it again for you. False doctrines by false teachers leads to false faith pursuing false gods. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to just be money. In this particular case, it was. It could be everything. Peter had this same issue with, some, with a church he was writing to in 2 Peter. He had the same issue come up. And listen what he says. This is pretty strong medicine. Of course, Peter's pretty outspoken anyway. But he says, but false prophets also arose among the people. He's talking about in the Old Testament. Just as there will be false teachers among you. This is 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought, bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That verse he says in there, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. That is happening today. People are disenchanted with the church. They're disenchanted with Christianity because they've met too many Christian charlatans. 
Because, see, many use the lingo that we use. I mean, they love speaking Christianese, I say. Our term, they use our terms to convince people that they are serious followers of Christ. They're pious. They use the right words. They have the right things. Born again example. It means something. But it, it doesn't mean you just say you believe. It's, it means something happened. I mean, being born is a traumatic event when it happens the first time. So being born again has got to be somewhat of a change. But everybody wants to use that word and talk just about saying you believe something or even believing in Jesus. But they also use these terms to convince us that prosperity is the result of believing in Jesus Christ. The prosperity gospel is rampant. And then if you visit Africa or India or any of these third world countries where satellite TV is very prevalent, believe it or not, because that's the best way they can get TV, they are constantly asking us evangelical Christians who come over there, please turn off the prosperity gospel. Like we got control over it. It's terrible. They, th- they say things like, live your best life now. Live your best life now? Ask Job about that, okay? Did he live his best life now? If you read the book of Job, you know the story. To this week, I saw this. Repentance and confession of sin are never necessary. Repentance and confession of sin are never necessary. That's a, supposedly a Christian televangelist, I call him. In a book he wrote, he wrote that down. He didn't just say it. He wrote it down. Repentance and confession. I know, I'm looking at your faces, I'm laughing. It's like, I can't believe it either. Let's ask David about that. Let's ask David, is repentance and confession necessary? Go read Psalms 51 and you'll find out he sure, it sure is. And then there's another example. This pastor said that Jesus came to him in a vision and asked for his forgiveness. That Jesus asked him for his forgiveness because of some harm that happened to him. And this is supposedly an evangelical Christian church. Big church, large church, which sometimes that's what fuels this. It's out there. False ideas, false things, false doctrines. Jesus is not the only way. You hear that one? Homosexual love is okay. It's right. Abortion's okay to God. That's false doctrines. That's not truth. False teachers that God is love, there's no wrath in God, that transsexuality is God's gift to you, that Jesus asked me to be forgive him. Wow. These are the false doctrines and the false teachers that are out there. So understand how you need to recognize this, okay? I know those are really, really obvious, okay? I gave you some really obvious ones, but not all of them are so obvious, but you can recognize them by using what Paul has told us here in this passage. You can protect yourself. You can refute them if you get a chance to talk to somebody who's kind of straying off into the wrong direction. It's important for us to know what we believe and why. The why is because it's written right here. It's testified. It's bona fide. It's proven. But know it. We got to know what we believe. Paul gave some really strong signs of how to spot these things, the false doctrines and the false teachers. We need to watch people's reactions when you disagree with them. Have you ever watched that? When you disagree with somebody, how do they react? Are they, dis- are they defen- defensive? They put up the shields? Or is their attitude more like, well, I, I need to think about that some more. Maybe I need to go study that some more. Watch their attitudes when they're confronted. See what they say about other leaders that you might trust that you know are believers 
I bring up some names every once in a while in a conversation with a non-believer, and if, they, if they're trying to pretend to be Christians, it's like they, they will instantly usually try to put down the person I brought up. But Christianity, and I put that again in air quotes, has been used by many to mislead or even exercise control over them. And that's never been the goal of Christianity. Jesus gave up all control, by the way. You don't get nailed to a cross by keeping control of something. You give it up. If every discussion with them comes to an argument or a heated conflict, the truth may not be there. They may be deprived of it. See, Jesus taught us to love each other, even our enemies. So if you, if you do what he told the Ephesians to do, speak the truth in love, and it always turns into anger, <laughs> you, you, there may be no faith there. There may be no love for the church there. There may be some fake faith in play there. And then the false motives, which is what we really got down to in verse 5 there, the false motives. It will be good for you to send me $100. God will bless you. I, I, give and your needs will be filled. And that's what the, that, that, that statement is what the African and India churches, evangelical, true gospel worship, Bible-believing churches are seeing. Send me this money. They're asking people in third world countries to send them money so they'll be blessed and they're running and these churches are running into people that say well what's what do i get for coming to jesus <sighs> got a lot of work to do folks the false gods abortion is the god of convenience lgbtq god of legitimacy there are no absolutes that is the god of contradiction by the way if they say there's no absolutes that is an absolute and that defeats that argument altogether but we need to see how to leave them alone and how to be aware of them and, and avoid them and, and and see their motives their heart motives are really where it lies and that's why they debate and fight for this jesus never needs your money I might need your money. No, Jesus never needs your money. Jesus never needs your money. That's why I never make it like a goal of how much money we're going to raise for any offering. We'll give what God can give, lead us to give, and he'll be happy with that. Jesus owns the fat cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the hills, and he owns the potatoes growing in the hills. He does not need our money. So when people start saying they need your money or Jesus needs your money, that's, that's a misnomer. Jesus needs your heart. Jesus needs your commitment. That's what he wants. And when a person can't admit wrong or allow concession, they probably need a heart adjustment. They probably need to be saved in most cases. Or they may be just faking their faith to achieve status. If you, if you go on Twitter, if you go on Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, there's all kinds of platforms out there there's a lot of people out there just trying to make a name for themselves. How many likes do I get? How many replies do I get? How many, you know, whatever. They're trying to make themselves known by the status on their social media platform. And that's when money becomes the bottom line to their motives. Okay, that's what they're really after. And that's when another God emerges. That's when you see it clearly. Their motives are profit See, the secret to faking faith, or spotting fake, <laughs> the secret to spotting fake faith is to recognize fake doctrines 
and you need to know your Bible first. That's what we need to do as believers in Christ. All the other stuff I've told you this morning, walk away with this one action in your mind about this false faith and false doctrines. We need to know our Bible. And once you know your Bible, you have all the knowledge you need to discern right from wrong, to discern the idolatry, the discontentment, and the wrong motives. So that's point number one. The false doctrines and the false faith that that eventually comes out of this. But Paul points that out. But now he points to genuine godliness, which is the fun part of this passage. The fun of the genuine contented faith. That's what we all need. We need that. Godliness brings true contentment. Let me read verses 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. I hope so. What a simple statement with such a powerful meaning. But godliness with contentment is great gain. God is saying that, okay? Not just Paul writing it. God saying it. If God says it, it's going to happen. You notice how he he says that godliness is the first ingredient in living a life free from these kind of false motives and stuff. Now, let me define godliness for you. So we've gone through it. Matter of fact, it's mentioned nine times in this one book, 1 Timothy. Godliness is the awe and reverence in loving, obeying, and trusting God's provision and power. Godliness defined is the awe and reverence in loving, obeying, and trusting God's provision and his power no matter what. Trust him no matter what. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Daniel. And so Paul tells them to to live in God's love and be content there, be satisfied with their situation. When they're discontented, check their godliness. When 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 you're Feeling out of touch or pursuing sin? Check your contentment. Are you content? These are just, they go back and forth, but together they are the greatest gain you'll ever have. The sole source of true peace in life comes from living out faith in Christ persistently. There's no top of the ladder to, to achieve in Christianity. As we walk in faith in Christ every day, that's the persistent pursuit. That's being faithful And that's what God's called us to do. There's nothing elaborate about it. Live your life in the conditions you're in following Christ. Verse 7, Paul takes them back to Job's story. This this verse almost is almost word for word from Job chapter 1, verse 21. Job lost all he owned, all his possessions and all his children. And he sat down and he said, naked I came into the world Naked I will go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord takes and the Lord gives. The Lord takes away. That's what Paul's bringing them back to right here. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. You came in naked, you're going to go out basically naked. That's, that's the point Job made. There is no hearse. There is no U-Hauls behind a hearse. Okay? You've heard that. There's no storage units in cemeteries either. Okay? So you can't store it in, in, in there and be, you have access to it. All our possessions stay behind at death. And that's the point he's making here. So Jesus tells us to lay up treasures in heaven. See, there's the alternative. Don't put it in a storage unit. Don't put it in a bank account. Store up treasures in heaven. Use what you have now as best you can. God's not asking us to go into in poverty. But use what you have now to lay up treasures in heaven. Those are the things you're in charge of. 
Invest in the kingdom of God. Use wealth to bless others now. And then in verse 8, Paul just basically tells us how to be content. We just need sustenance and coverings. That's what those two words in the Greek really mean, sustenance and coverings. So that's food, clothing, and shelter. That's all we need, okay, us American dream pursuers. (laughs) That's all we need, food, clothing, shelter. And that's what a lot of believers in a lot of countries right now, that's all they have, or sometimes they don't even have some one of them. Paul knows that most people have more than this, just food, clothing, and shelter, but God implores them to be able to live with just the basics. Just the basics. The church had to learn to be thrifty. They had to learn to be prudent with their possessions. Then they were prepared for the persecution that would come and take everything. And it happened. It happened. The Jerusalem church saw it first. At the stoning of Stephen, chapter 7, 8, he, of Acts, he stoned The Jews start spreading because persecution has begun and they're stealing everything and taking everything. And Paul, once he becomes saved, he starts collecting offerings from all over Eurasia to take back to Jerusalem to support that church and help them. God will provide. Are we ready for that? Their focus, Paul says, must be godliness. That's where it's got to start. Sometimes we, we don't even need to distract ourselves with, I'm going to focus on God on this so God will pay my bills. That's not, that's not how it works. Following Christ's teachings and staying content in your current situation, their current situations. And Paul had been there. He spent three years at Ephesus. He knew their current situation. He knew what was going on there. True contentment can only, and I stress that word only, only be found in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. True contentment. When you have that, you have everything because you have heaven. You have an eternal reward that Jesus has promised. But also, that is the source of our godliness. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The heart change that happens when we believe. Godliness is very important to our faith. Jesus gave us some very clear instructions on how to keep wealth, money, and greed away from our hearts. I'm not going to read it, but Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, is all about what we do with our possessions, how we live in relationship to our possessions. And it's in the Sermon on the Mount. If you ever want to find out how to live your life as a Christian, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty easy. Matthew 5, 6, 7. Luke 6 is another example of that. Use that. The Sermon on the Mount is very, very, very applicable every day. Knowing God intimately is the path of being content. And that's what Christ would have us do. Time and money will compete for your heart. I know it does mine. So carving out time and devoting effort to our daily, my daily study of God's word is a big challenge. Always is. Because there's something always out there in this discontented world competing for your time. Really it is. So we need to think of the times in our life when we were most discontent. Think of the times when you were most dissatisfied with your life and ask yourself, why was I so distraught in those times? Usually our struggles with contentment revolve around our wants, not our needs. Our wants, our lusts, our own plans. Now, like I said before, God doesn't ask us to just be poor for the sake of being poor. He doesn't want you, if he calls you to give it all away, you better give it all away because he's going to bless you unless you don't. But seeking better pay in situation is good when it's done right. But... We need to not make it our God, which is really the ultimate thing that happens. When you're worried about enough money, 
you're, it's usually because you bought something you shouldn't have bought. I did that many times. When struggling in our spiritual walk with God, it's usually because I've obligated my time to something else. That's usually when, when I'm struggling the most with my, my walk with God and my reading of my Bible and my prayer time. When I'm running around hurried and too busy to serve or to help, it's because I've just committed my time to something else. Your calendar and your checkbook your calendar and your bank account are the greatest thermometers of where your life and your heart is, where you're doing with your money and your time. I mean, we pursue financial security or material gains or comfortable lifestyles instead of God. The Christian church does that. I mean, we, it's, it's, it's rampant. We're all guilty of it in some form or fashion. We let circumstances dictate our reactions, our moods, our perspectives on life instead of Christ dictating those things. We look to worldly wisdom for this life instead of listening to the Holy Spirit speak from the Bible. First time I ever met with a financial advisor, and he saw how, he saw how much we gave, and it wasn't much, but he saw how much we gave to our church. He asked me this question, do you really need to give that much to your church? <laughs> I wish I'd have said, no, I need to give more. But I said, yes, I do, because it keeps my heart right. It makes my heart focus on the right things. Godliness, living our faith, vitally striving to serve Jesus with all we have, makes us content. When you start looking at it that way, when you look at living for God is going to make me content, and I'm happy with that, that changes everything. So be a God pleaser first. Make that your priority. Be content with where you are. Don't always be looking for the next. Trust me, God will bring it along when it's time for you and he's ready for you to have it. And then you just watch God bless you. And it's usually in an eternal fashion, not just a material fashion. We need to know that godliness is the, the greatest gain we can ever have. So as I summarize and conclude this thing, false ideas create fake faith and fake gods. Remember that. But Paul reminds us that our eternal life drives our com commit contentment. Knowing that we have eternal life should make you as content as anybody, more than so. God gives us everything we need to be happy and holy. He gives us everything you need for life and godliness, he says. That's what the scripture actually says. And so when Jesus saves your soul and changes your heart and gives you forgiveness for all your sins... You possess all he has. You're a co-heir with Christ. Your inheritance is secure in heaven. And you can live your life with a different attitude toward money, toward position, toward status, toward wealth. You can live with a different attitude because you don't have to worry about that stuff. God's got you. You now live in the realm of truth, God's truth, absolute truth. As long as you keep picking this up and reading it. Jesus Christ is true contentment and godliness. And that's the greatest game. And being a child of the king means you have that. So let's take a little time now and pray over that. We're going to have a time of silent prayer. Just in your own hearts, lay those idols down. Look for those spots of discontentment that you need to give back to Christ. Let's do that for a few minutes and then I'll close this in prayer. Let's pray.